Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasia and today I'm speaking to Sebastian DiMartino, Rewilding Coordinator at Rewilding Argentina. He will be speaking to us about the NGO, which works in various parts of Argentina, and telling us more about its latest successes with its Jaguar reintroduction program in Ibera National Park. Sebastian, thank you for joining us. Please could you begin by telling us what it is that you do with Rewilding Argentina? What we do is we help the national government to create uh, big national parks. We get uh, money from different donors, so we buy land and then we donate that land to the national government to set national parks. In that way, we help the national government to establish or enlarge eight uh, national parks in Argentina with the donation of almost half a million hectares of private properties that turn into public land. Usually that process is a long one. So in the meanwhile, what we do is we restore those places because they've been, most of them, private properties devoted to cattle ranching, sometimes agriculture or forestry. So uh, we restore those lands. And we also work a lot with the local mm -hmm. communities to uh, try to change their economies from an economy that mostly is based on the extraction of natural resources to an economy that is based most on services mm -hmm. and mostly linked with ecotourism based on wildlife watching. So we prepare that part so that the local communities can go in and do different activities of ecotourism. So my job is uh, mostly related with uh, the restoration of ecosystems and species. In some places, the, the ecosystems are so degraded that some of the species went extinct. So we try to generate, again, ecosystems that are complete and fully functional. Mm. So by complete, we understand that those ecosystems have all the species that inhabited that place in historic times. And by functional, we understand that it's an ecosystem in which the species are not only present, but they are present in numbers that are big enough to achieve their ecological roles. Because we focus mostly in keystone species. Keystone species are species that have outstanding ecological roles, and without them, the ecosystem doesn't work well or sometimes even collapses. So these keystone species usually are large predators. Sometimes they are frugivores, fruit eaters, or grazer, herbivores, usually big mammals, big birds, that are the ones that disappear faster when we start to do uh, different activities in natural ecosystems. So they not only have outstanding ecological roles, but sometimes they are the ones that need more our attention because they are species that are usually endangered or even extinct. Also, they are species that have a high cultural value because they are very charismatic, they, their presence is very strong. So in that way, the project in which we've been working for a longer time, for 20 years now, is the Ibera, that is a big uh, wetland, is an incredible diverse ecosystem in a province that is called Corrientes, that is located in northeastern Argentina. 
There, we help the national and the provincial governments to create a big natural park. Actually, it's the, the biggest park in Argentina. That is a 700,000 hectares park, and we donate 150,000 hectares of land that was private and was turned into public land to create a national park. And then the, there was another 550,000 hectares of public land that now is the provincial park. So we have a national and a provincial park that mm -hmm. are neighbors. So they form a big block of 700,000 hectares. That is a very good starting point to try to regenerate these complete and fully functional ecosystems. So for more than 10 years, we've been working in the reintroduction of many species that went extinct and in the recovery of the population of other species that became very rare, mostly because of hunting and habitat destruction. In 2007, we started reintroducing the first species there that was the giant anteater. Then we continue with the pampas deer, the collared peccary, the red and green macaw, the bare-faced curassow, some the giant otter also, that is the biggest river otter of the world. Some of these species were not only extinct in Iberá or Corrientes province, but also in entire Argentina, like red and green macaw and the giant otter, they disappear completely from the entire country. And then in 2012, really in 2010, 2011, we start to plan the coming back of the big uh, predator of these wetlands, that's the jaguar. The jaguar is the biggest cat of the American continent and the third one in the world after the, the tiger and the, the lion. It had disappeared like 70 years ago from Corrientes province and also from the Ibera wetlands. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's a critically endangered species in Argentina, and it's estimated that only 200 to 300 jaguars survive in the extreme northeastern and northwestern part of the country. In 2012, we started to build a big reintroduction center in the heart of these Ibera wetlands. And that was a center that was conceived to produce two kinds of animals to be released. At the beginning, we brought animals that were captive animals that, that were born in zoos or wildlife rescue centers that could never be released because they are too used to humans. They associate humans with food provision. But we could breed those animals and raise the calves in very big enclosures without human connection and feeding them with live prey since the day they were mm -hmm. born. So that way, those calves could be released in the wild in opposition to their fathers and, and mothers. We produce uh, some animals that way. And then the center also was able to receive animals that were wild in origin, but uh, for some reasons they lose that condition. And in that way, we brought some animals, females and males, mm -hmm. from Brazil. For example, two females whose mothers were shot. When they were juveniles, they became orphans. They were rescued by the Brazilian government and then uh, sent them to Argentina 
And also, for example, another male was a juvenile animal that was found in very bad conditions. Also in the Pantanal is a big mm -hmm. wetland in Brazil. And he could be recovered also and sent to Argentina. So by producing these offsprings and by rehabilitating these wild animals, now we have a group of nine founders, nine jaguars that can potentially be released. So it took a really long time <laughs> to achieve that. We've been working for more than 10 years. Early this year, in January, we opened the gates of one of these very big enclosures. It's a 30 hectares enclosure, so it's a, really a big one. And we released the first female. It was one of these orphans from Brazil that now is three years old with her two cubs. Those are the first three wild jaguars in the Ibera wetlands and in Corrientes province after 70 years of extinction. Then in 2021, this year, we will be releasing little by little, step by step, the, the other animals. The next one is another female that also has two calves. They will be released maybe in one more month, something like that, a month and a half. We started by releasing the females first because females disperse less. They have smaller territories and they base or the, the territories are uh, defined in reference to prey abundance. The, the preys in Ibera now are very abundant because we recover the prey species for showers, mostly capybaras, that is a very big rodent, and caimans. But there are many others, marsh deer, anteaters, pampas deer, armadillos, many fish, different fish species because the, the shower is also a very aquatic cat. And also by releasing uh, females with calves uh, that are about four months old, the calves are big enough to follow the mother, but not to follow her a uh, long distance. So that way, the female stays mm -hmm. in a small territory anchored in the place we want her to be. So she starts to explore that territory little by little, and we avoid these dispersion problems of the, the female walking long distances for several days and leaving the park, for example. We want this uh, founder population to stay inside this big park, at least at the, at the beginning. That's a really amazing achievement, and it's a long way to have come in a relatively short time. Just so our listeners can understand better, you know, when you speak about the national parks that you help to set up, you mentioned that you work with government and with other stakeholders. What is the role that Rewilding Argentina takes in actually helping to set up those national parks? Obviously, there's the donation of the land that you spoke about, but what else is it that you do? So one, one thing is that we want to help the national government to create big parks because uh, in Argentina, the area occupied by national parks is kind of small. I mean, we are a big country, so we have many national parks, like 40 national parks in Argentina. That's a lot of square kilometers, but really is less than 2% of the country, considering that percentage is a very small area. So uh, we think we need to create uh, more national mm -hmm. parks 
the one way to give sustainability to, to this uh, conservation action is to donate those lands to the national government because Argentina, although we always have a lot of economic problems, uh, the, the National Park Service uh, we think is a good one. It has more than 100 years, so the lands that become national park, they are protected forever. It's much better to have that land on belonging to the government than to an NGO like ours. But we don't want to to donate uh, that land with a degraded landscape. So we want to donate that land, as I mentioned before, with an ecosystem that is complete with all the, the species. So we, we keep working on that lands, sometimes even after the donation, until we achieve sustainable populations of every species that we are reintroducing. In Ibera, we are working with almost 10 uh, different species, reintroducing them. Some of them, they already have good established populations, like the giant anteater or the pampas deer or the collared peccary. But with others, like the shower, we need to keep working for at least 10 more years. But at the end, with the donation of the land, we, we need to be able to live. <laughs> if we cannot leave the, the place, it's because we didn't do a good work, because the project uh, has to be sustainable without us. And it's the same with the creation of these local economies. At the beginning, we help a lot local people to make groups by which they provide tourist services. We help them to acquire uh, horses or bicycles or kayaks. But then they have to be more and more independent. And at the, at the end, they have to have a sustainable mm -hmm. shop without us intervening anymore. Mm -hmm. So with the donation of the land, with the reintroduction of these uh, species, and with the creation of the, this new economy, at the beginning, uh, we intervene a lot. But at the end, we need to live and that uh, has to keep uh, running if we do a good job. If not, is that we, we fail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very similar, I think, with what NPON does with Africa Foundation. And I think the idea is to get everything up and running and then to be able to hand it over in a state that it can keep on sustaining itself. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's a, it's a very interesting work, I think, now that you mention and beyond and Africa, because um, the creation of this uh, national park, but also restoring these ecosystems, I think it's a kind of a new conception of conservation. Because we always say that in Argentina and in Latin America, we are used to preserve by not touching. It seems that the best thing that you can do to preserve an ecosystem or a species is not touching, not intervening. That could work many decades ago, but we say that the impact that we have on natural systems, the impact that we have on different species is so big, everything is so degraded that conservation by not touching is not an option anymore. Now you have to touch a lot, you have to do a lot of active management because the conservation movement has to be more focused on restore mm. what we lose. Also keep trying to preserve what is left, but that, that is not enough. We need to recover territories, we need to recover species. That way we have to do a lot of active management that is something new in conservation in Argentina. I think in, in Africa, 
you are way ahead of us. <laughs> you have a lot of experience doing that, more than half a century of active management of different species. And in that sense, we went a lot to Africa and mostly to South Africa to learn. We are always sending our staff there to open mm. our minds because uh, it's something that if you don't see, you cannot imagine really what can be achieved by this kind of active management. Also, we, we say that we do rewilding, so that's the name of our organization. Rewilding is a concept that was achieved in North America, but really the, the, the ones that did rewilding in the first time are the African countries, the, the ones that have more experience and the ones that are doing this in a big scale. Although I, I think we, we are doing a, a good job here in Argentina, one of the challenges that we have is to give scale to what we are doing because we are uh, focused on four different territories in Argentina, trying to recover species, but moving compared with South Africa, very little amount of animals yet. So it's, it's good for us to, to go there, to open uh, our minds and to see what can be achieved in a big scale if you have the technology, if you have the knowledge, and most of all, if you have the decision of, of doing that. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very important point that you make because even though this kind of land management might have been actively happening in, in Africa for a long time, I don't think that the general public or the people out there really understand it. Especially now during times of COVID, you keep on hearing this has been great to give nature a chance to go back to itself. But a lot of people don't understand that it's not as easy as that anymore and that it actually takes a lot of work to readdress and find that balance, which is what you're actively trying to do now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because um, uh, bringing back these keystone species, we said that it's a good tool, it's an incredible tool to fight against the environmental crisis that we are facing now. I think the, the main environmental crisis that we are facing is the loss of mm. diversity, the extinction of uh, species. And by uh, recovering these uh, landscapes, uh, bringing back these species, these keystone species, of course, you contribute to the conservation of these uh, species, but the keystone species like the jaguars or the top predators, uh, what they do is they contribute to the heterogeneity, I don't know if that's uh, the English uh, word, of the landscape. To, to, so the landscape becomes uh, more different in different places. So that is good for diversity. You have a more species on a landscape that has heterogeneity and it's not all the same because we always say, for example, now in, in Ibera, we have an incredible big population of capybaras Yes. because the top predator, the predator of the capybaras is absent. So capybaras are everywhere grazing all the time without fear. So they degrade the vegetation. And we think that by returning the shower, the capybaras will avoid to graze in some places mm -hmm. where they can be easily captured by the shower. And in those places, the vegetation will grow higher and near the water where the capybaras have more chances to survive and the field is safer. There they will graze more. So we have a short grass there, for example, and that heterogeneity is good for diversity. 
you have a more diverse landscape, so then with more species. And for example, also by recovering the, the vegetation, you help to capture carbon, that is one of the main uh, greenhouses elements. Mm -hmm. So having these keystone species back in the ecosystem, it also helps you to fight against climate change, for sure. And it also helps you to fight against this third environmental crisis that we discover uh, now that are the spread of pandemias, because also the, the top predators, what they do is they remove the sick individuals, mostly of the populations. So the individuals that have pathogens, they have less possibility to survive in the presence of predators and to spread those diseases that sometimes jumps even to, to humans. So bringing back mm -hmm. these uh, keystone species to have these healthy environments, again, as I always say, is complete and fully functional. It helps to fight to reverse the three main environmental crises that we are facing now, the loss of biodiversity, the climate change, and the spread of pandemias. Of course, it's a hard work, like you said, but I think that we have no, no chance. We have, we have to do it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sebastian, earlier when you spoke, you mentioned that you work with two different areas, that you work with national parks and provincial parks in Argentina. Can you explain what is the difference between those two? Do they give yes. a, a different yes. level of protection? Mm -hmm. or Yeah, there, there should be no difference be, between a provincial park or a national park except the jurisdiction. In Argentina, mm -hmm. we are a federal country. We have 24 different provinces, and each province is like a small state. They have their own constitutions. Mm -hmm. They have their governors, their deputies, their senators. Yes. So if you want to create a national park in Argentina, you have first to get a permit from the province to create the national park. You have to pass a law in the province that allows the creation of the national park. And then you have to pass another law at the national level to mm. create the national park. So it's kind of complicated because, uh, as I say, it's a federal country with very strong provinces. Really, th there should be no, no difference. The, the national service, mm -hmm. the national park service, is, uh, is stronger than the provincial ones. Mm -hmm. So we prefer to donate the land to the national government instead of the province. But I think the, the best uh, scenario is when you have like a mix, part of the area managed by the national government and other part by the provincial government, because when they mm -hmm. pull uh, together, is much better. Sometimes one works harder and the other relaxes, or the provincial governments, they feel more the need of the people in the territory because they are local governments. The national government is far away in Buenos Aires. Mm -hmm. So they take the decisions based not too much on the needs of local people. So that's in some ways not good. So the, the local government sometimes pays more attention to that and helps much more to create these new economies that I was mentioning. In that sense, the, mm -hmm. the provincial government is much more active than the national government. But then the national government has much more resources and especially it has a strong system by law. For example, in, in a national park, you cannot do mining or oil extraction 
but in some provinces they allow that on provincial parks. So the best ways I think is to have a mix. Really, there should be no no difference. The only difference should be the sheriff fiction. But in the in practice, there are some some difference. The the national service is a stronger one with much more resources, with a hundred years of history, with a strong laws. It's, it's good also to have okay. the, the engagement of the province with a provincial park. Okay, and. Are the parks in Argentina themselves, are they fenced in? No, that is different from the South African model. They, they are not fenced. We have no park uh, with fences. So that's a, also a challenge because, uh, for example, by releasing jaguars, the jaguars can move to wherever they want. <laughs> so that's why we work a lot on different strategies to anchor them to the park. And that uh, strategies doesn't mm. include a, a fence. So we keep the, the animals like a couple of years on very big pens so they get used to the environment. So when they leave, the, they already know the landscape, the sounds, the smells of the, of the place. It's a familiar place for them. Also by having other animals that are still in the pens, those animals is like they attract the ones that we are releasing. And then, as I said, we release at the beginning the females. And when we have three or four females with the territories well established, then we will start to releasing uh, males. And one mm -hmm. of the other strategies is, as I mentioned, to release the females with calves mm -hmm. that can follow her, but not too long distance. That also helps. And finally, to have a lot of praise that anchors the animals to the territory. Mm. The, the capybaras, the caimans, they are really, really abundant and the animals don't need to move too much to find food. So mm -hmm. this, this first female, we released her uh, two months ago and she only moved like three and a half kilometers. So <laughs> she's not moving at all, really. Maybe because uh, she has calves, but mostly because there are so many capybaras mm -hmm. that it's, it's like she has a delivery of capybara. <laughs> mm. <laughs> she doesn't have to move at all to find food. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it must also take quite careful planning to figure out, you know, what is the number of, say, jaguar that that area can sustain and quite careful management a long time into the future yeah. to work yeah. out what the optimum numbers will be. We did a very long planning process in which we obtain the, the abundance of potential prey for showers, and we calculate uh, how many showers could live in a territory with no conflict. That's about 100 jaguars, that is estimated. But <laughs> I think that you have to deal with a lot of technical aspects. In that sense, we work a lot with, mm -hmm. in our uh, organization, we have a lot of biologists, veterinarians, rangers, but we also work with other entities, some of them, the, for example, the Research Council of Argentina that advise us mm -hmm. in different aspects of the project. But I think what is most important and more difficult to achieve is to have social license to release the showers. Mm -hmm. So we work a lot also with, with that because the, the technical aspects, although sometimes they are complicated, I think are the easiest uh, part of the project. 
the, the most complicated is to have the social license on, mm -hmm. and to have a social support that then that means political support to approve the project and reintroduce the showers. Because releasing a top predator in a place that is not fenced, you need to have a lot of support and you need to build that support. And we do that through economy. That's why I said that we work a lot in these local economies that are linked with a park mm -hmm. in which they can do ecotourism based on wildlife watching. So now we have many small uh, towns surrounding yes. the park, the Ibera Park. In some of them, now the main activity is ecotourism. So mm -hmm. for them, the jaguar is a motor of economy. And for them, jaguar means employment. So like, like the other species. But jaguar is like an icon. It's like, a, I don't know, it's the, the top one, the top predator, but also <laughs> the, the top charismatic species. In that way, they support a lot the reintroduction yes. of the shower. But you, you need to work a lot to get that support. And once you have it locally, then government of Corrientes mm. Province understand. And if the people is happy, that means mm. votes for politicians. So they start to support that. Yes. And finally, you reach the, the national government. We start work locally. So we... We get that support from local people at the beginning, and then that changed the perception of the project for the provincial authorities and then the national government. And one thing is, uh, we always said that we don't do conservation, we produce nature. <laughs> that change on the definition changes everything, because usually politicians don't like the word conservation because they think, as I mentioned before, that is to not touch anything. You don't allow to, to touch anything. So for them, they are places that are useless, very beautiful, but they mean nothing from a political perspective or an economic perspective. But we say that as the ranchers have their, their ranch for producing cattle and then sell the meat or the milk or the leather, we have these national parks. It's a territory in which we produce jaguars or capybaras or anteaters, and then how we get money from that, not, not we, but the local communities, is through ecotourism. Mm. That's why we also work with park creation. That is our ranch, with the rewilding of different species. That is our production. Mm -hmm. And with these uh, local economies based on ecotourism, that's how we get money from that production. So that three steps model, we call it production of nature or nature production. And that is much easier to explain to the politician sector that are the ones that give you the permits at the end to do this, all these things. Sometimes the conservation, the conservationists don't like too much yes. nature production, <laughs> but I think we have to be more uh, pragmatic to get results. In, in at the end, is is the is the same, but you need to explain what you do to the ones that take the the decisions. If, if not, mm. you will have a very nice speech, but you could not get uh, too much, uh, I don't know, results. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a concept that we've always believed in, is that conservation must pay for itself economically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you do it a lot in South Africa with tourism. Well, others do it with hunting or meat production, but you, you work a lot with with tourism and it's very interesting that 
the private sector engages with this nature production in South Africa. That is something that is not happening in Argentina. Here is only the government that do this. We have the, the private sector is, is, is not doing all these uh, conservation uh, things. So that is something that we, we need to learn a lot from Africa. How, how to engage the private sector, the model of conservancies is a very interesting uh, one also. We go to, to Africa not just to learn how to translocate animals, how to capture them, but also different models of, of conservation that are very successful. Now, Sebastian, you mentioned that the jaguar numbers had dropped dramatically about 70 years ago, I think you said. What are some of the factors that contributed to that? And... What has changed since then? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the, the jaguars were very common until 150 years ago in all northern and central Argentina. They start to disappear little by little, mostly because of hunting, because the skin was very valuable in the past, and also because of retaliation, because of conflict, conflicts with, with ranchers. And then in later days, because mm -hmm. of habitat destruction because of all the soybean plantations that we have, that the forests are being cleared, the construction of dams, the, the fracking and oil activities. We started mm -hmm. not just to, to kill the different species of wildlife, but also to make the natural environments to, to disappear. So the jaguar lost more than 95% of its distribution area in Argentina, so that's really a lot. And as I said, there are only 200 to 300 remaining. In the province of Corrientes, where we are working, it disappeared completely 70 years ago. And what is changing? I think there's a change in our culture. We are more responsible towards conservation. Another thing that is very important is many people move to live to cities. So now the population in the countryside is much smaller than before. And also, I think in some places like in Iberá, where we are working, or in El Impenetrable, is another region of Argentina, it's a dry forest, where we are working also to, to recover the jaguar populations. We have the possibility to build this a model of nature production. It's a model that in some places that are marginal to traditional activities can compete with these traditional activities, with agriculture, with cattle ranching, with forestry. It can compete and it can win. So from an economic perspective, there are different things that are allowing us to bring back the, the jaguars from a local perspective. We always work in local territories. We don't have a big office in Buenos Aires. More than 90% of our staff lives in the territory and always link to a territory. We, we don't have a big office and we do this kind of workshops and meetings and <laughs> conservation plans. We are territorial people. So from a, this uh, perspective, I think that we can develop these conservation models, this uh, production of nature models. These are sustainable models, viable models, in which you need a healthy landscapes for the economy to thrive. And when the economy does better, that helps you protect and preserve the, the landscape and the species. They both 
have beneficial effects on each other, conservation and economy. If you cannot link that, that is kind of complicated mm -hmm. to do conservation. Absolutely. <laughs> Now, a question a little bit more about the actual mechanics of, of what you've been doing with the, with the Jaguar reintroduction. You mentioned that when you brought in these Jaguar from other areas or when you had cubs born, that you made sure that there was no human interaction, that they did not become used to or habituated to, to humans. I think that's easier said than done when you're, when you're looking after animals that are actually kept in an enclosure. What are some of the measures yeah. that you took? Mm -hmm. How did you actually yeah. manage to exactly. achieve this? Mm -hmm. Okay, so when we bring animals from captivity, what we do is we have them in big enclosures, but not, not so big because they are used to humans. We feed them every day with meat. <laughs> And then we, we start to train the female so she learns on how to capture live prey. They, they didn't did it before, but at the end they, they learn how to do it. And then we breed that female with, with a male. And when the female gets pregnant, we move her to a very big enclosure where she will have the calves. And we manage that enclosure from the distance. We have different video surveillance cameras. So we see the animals through that cameras never directly and we have different lights they are like boxes that they open automatically where we put uh, the live prey for example capybaras and that's how we enter live prey to those very big enclosures without them noticing that we are the ones that are putting the, the prey there so the prey enters into this uh, big pen and sooner or later the female will find it and hunt it. Mm -hmm. And that way she teaches the calves. Mm -hmm. So there's no association. And those calves will never be fed with meat. They will always feed on live prey. So when they are like one and a half year old, that's when they start to become independent from the mother. We take the mother out from that enclosure and they keep there hunting by themselves practicing more and more on being good hunters, but never seeing a person. Or at least they, they can see you once in a while. That's not a big problem because wild jaguars see persons, sees persons. But the thing is that they don't associate you with food provision because if they are hungry and they don't find prey, they will go to find a person to, to find food. When they are like two years and a half or three years old, that they have the adult size, they don't grow anymore in size, we can put a, a transmitter in, in their neck and we can release them and follow them with the satellite connection. So those calves that are born in the center, after two and a half, three years of hard work, they are ready to be released. And in this year, we will be releasing some of them that born in the center two and a half years ago. Great. So that's how you do the monitoring once they've been released. You do it via through the tracking collars. Yeah, exactly. We, For example, this female that we release with small calves, she has a GPS device that collects points, position points every three hours. And then once per day at 5 a.m., She sends mm -hmm. those position points to our computer through a satellite. 
So that way we know where she is with the calves almost live. And we, we can have also other information because, for example, when she sends uh, points that are all together in the same place, we, we call that a cluster. That means that she spent uh, many hours there. So that's because she was resting or eating a prey. So we go to that clusters and we survey that cl those clusters and we get information, for example, uh, on what she's been hunting, if she's hunting enough. So it's a very useful uh, tool, the, the GPS uh, device with satellite connection for sure. And the cubs that she has now, when they're fully grown, are you planning to also put collars on them? Or will you carry on the monitoring that way? Yeah, it could be a possibility if we can capture them. We need to think that, as I said before, we need to start to disappear. <laughs> and the population has to be sustainable and success by, by itself. Yes. So little by little, our intervention decreases. So it could be a possibility with the first calves to try to capture them when they are uh, big enough mm -hmm. so we can keep monitoring them even if they are not with the with the female, with the mother. But we need to realize that there will be a point in which we will have no more control on every individual. And that is good. <laughs> What is your milestone or your indicator for success? You know, you say that at some at, at one stage you will actually want to to leave the project to to look after itself. How will you know when that time has come? Yeah. Okay. So when we have a regarding the park, when we have those lands donated to the national government and the, the ranchers and all the the administration of the national government is in place and taking care of the park then we can relax in that way. With the reintroduced species, when the species have populations that can grow by themselves without us adding more individuals in order for the population to grow or to have more genetic, genetic diversity, then we think that that population is sustainable, doesn't need too much active management because, mm. as I said, we don't have a strong culture of active management in Argentina. So the National Park Service will not do too much active management to sustain the population. They will deal with the threats, with the poaching, for example, or with cattle invading the park. That is something that they do. Or controlling fires, that is something that they do. But they don't do active management. So we can live when the population doesn't need too much active management yes. to keep growing in numbers and genetic diversity. Mm -hmm. Regarding the, the local economies, all these entrepreneurs that start to work with these ecotourism activities have the, their business that are also sustainable from an economic perspective, and they start to grow and have employees, and that's, that's when you can live. But the model has to be sustainable by itself. Yeah, in the three aspects, the national park creation, the reintroduction of species, and the creation of the new economy. You mentioned a couple of more releases that you've planned for this year. What other next steps mm -hmm. are you looking at at the moment? Well, regarding the jaguar, we will be releasing at least six other animals one year from now. 
but also we keep uh, working on breathing individuals because uh, this doesn't end with the releases of 2021. We need to think on some releases on 2022, 2023. We need to look for more wild individuals that can be translocated as we did with those animals that I mentioned from Brazil. So there will be a point, I think, in which we will have 15 animals, 12 to 15 jaguars mm -hmm. released in the wild and the population will start to grow by itself. Then we will have to control the genetic diversity of that population and maybe we will need to translocate or to release some more animals, but not to increase the number of the population, but to increase the genetic diversity if it's needed. And now we need to start working also with local people who are the neighbors of the parks and the ones that will have contact with the jaguar sooner or later. So we are working a lot with them, with education activities, also changing their economies. Most of them, they have a few number of cattle that don't give them too much money, but that's what they do. So we try to help them to convert to ecotourism activities. Some of them, they already did it. Also, we pay attention to other things that are more specific and look smaller, but for them are very important. For example, we put solar panels on each of the mm -hmm. small houses of these neighbors, and now they have communication with us every day because they are like isolated. Uh, they don't have cell phones, uh, so the, there's no way that they can communicate with the exterior. And now they have that communication with a member of our staff that every day talks with them, tells them where the jaguars are, how they are mm -hmm. moving, what they are hunting, and about many, many other things that are the, the real problems for them. So that is something that we will work more and more on the relationship with the local uh, neighbors that sooner or later we, they will start to coexist with, uh, with jaguars. Fantastic. Still a lot of work to do. So definitely best of luck with that, with, with your upcoming plans. Yeah. <laughs> Sebastian, thank you so much. It's been really, really interesting to talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to fill us in on what has been happening and what is going to be happening in, in the near future. And uh, congratulations on your newly released Jaguars. I hope they continue to thrive and do very well. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for taking your time in listening to what we are doing. Thank you to, to the PINDA staff because they are always very kind and we learn a lot from them, from wildlife management, ecotourism, dealing with local communities, and they always receive us with a big smile. <laughs> so uh, we are very grateful for that also. Thank you. I know at and Beyond, we really believe that the future of conservation lies in working together. So we're very, very glad that we can help. Thank you for listening to and Beyond Fireside Chats. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. If you have any comments or feedback, or would like to suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about, drop us an email at firesidechats at endbeyond.com. We'd love to hear from you.